Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. And so things like Mastodon and ActivityPub and Blue Sky excite me because they open up a different paradigm for how we think of the structure of the institutions of what is now the internet. Most journalists get it. They understand that digital media is different than corporately owned print newspapers or radio and television stations. And yet, we've only taken baby steps forward in our thinking about the ultimate transformation of our industry. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jeff Jarvis is the founding editor of Entertainment Weekly. He also blogs at buzzmachine.com, is a co-host on the podcast This Week in Google, and is a member of the faculty at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Jeff is also the author of several books about the ever-changing digital media landscape, and he's here to talk about his latest book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lesson for the Age of the Internet. Jeff, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. This is actually welcome back because you've been on the podcast before, way back in October 2014 at the Online News Association conference. You and the wonderful Mandy Jenkins, you know, came and, and did a, a live podcast with us. And I appreciate that. Let us say how much we miss Mandy and oh what, my a, God. what a tremendous innovator and leader she was in our industry. We miss her badly. Yeah. Oh, no, we didn't deserve how good she was. And right, right. what's great about it, you meet a lot of people who are smart and are innovative, but adding that to her heart and her enthusiasm about everything, I knew her tangentially through the podcast and I would run into her and she would, oh, you should talk to this person or she'd introduce me to people. And it was just, she didn't have to do that, but that's just who she was. Yes. Yes. Sadly, sadly missed. But anyway, so like I said, we talked to you back in 2014. How has your thinking around the future of the media industry evolved over those 11 years? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> evolved, blown up, just blown to smithereens, I guess. There's so much. The thing I struggle with these days is wither legacy media. Are they worth the effort? Most of the Newspaper chains in America are now controlled by hedge funds. They're not going to invest in any innovation. They're just going to rob them of cash flow. The New York Times and the Washington Post are incredibly important, but they disappoint more than I wish they did. I don't watch network news at all on broadcast. I do watch MSNBC. CNN is struggling. Fox is not news, and it's run by the single most maligned 
influence in English-speaking democracies, we're kind of screwed up. And I'm writing the next book about the internet, which to my surprise turned into a critique of media coverage of the internet and technology because of media's moral panic about it. And that turned out to just be one case study of the criticisms I have of media today. And I think what's happened to BuzzFeed and company is not the death of a birth of a new internet and a new media. I think it's the last gasp of the old mass media. My hope is that mass media is dying and we find the introduction of new journalism at a new scale. The thing that sort of stood out to me about this new book that you've written about print is this understanding that, no, 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 internet is a whole new thing. You know, the way that print revolutionized ideas, we tend to focus on the positives of what print has done over the years. It also did a lot of other things. And in order for it to function, the technology changed and that technology had impact on people's lives. So I think at some point, at the early days of the internet, the thinking was, oh, we just need to sort of move this structure over here and it'll be exactly the same. Oh, well, okay, there's some technical difficulties and we're gonna have to resize and okay, okay, maybe reporting on the web is a little different, but it's still, you know, I think early on people were saying, oh yeah, legacy media, you know, the old daily paper was gonna disappear, but it's bigger than that, I think. What motivated me to write the Gutenberg Parenthesis was to see what lessons there were to be learned from our entry into the age of print as we leave it. And let me be clear here, I'm not saying the print dies, though it probably will for newspapers and magazines. And I'm not saying we forget the lessons we had in print or that we abandoned the good value that was created then. But you're right, there were limitations of print and the presumptions that it brought. The most important lesson I think I learned was how the early days of print were conversational. Luther and the Pope were in discourse through their books and the burnings of them. And what ended that sense of conversation in media, I believe, was the mechanization and industrialization of print in the 19th century with steam-powered presses and the linotype and so on. And we reached that scale of media. And then we also, at the end of the century, reached the new business model of media, the attention economy, where you'd sell your product at a loss and make it up on advertising by selling the attention of your readers to advertisers. And then along came broadcast, which made it even more mass and more scale. And I argue that this idea of mass is fundamentally an insult to the public. It's a way not to see people as individuals or communities, not to listen to them. And so, yes, the internet comes along and it is inevitable, as Marshall McLuhan said, that any new medium takes the content of the last medium as its content. And newspapers and magazines are still recognizable as such on the internet. We haven't really begun to rethink and reinvent what journalism could be. This is what I tried to do in the program we call Engagement Journalism at the Newmark Journalism School with my colleague, Carrie Brown, is to get students to think past content, to think past stories and their story ideas, to think of journalism as service and as process and as an act rather than the vestige that comes out in the end of the day in what we called a newspaper. Yeah, because so much effort is being put to sustain something that, that's not sustainable. Digital first, this idea that it's really all digital and the financial model, which you all kind of just assume would sort of evolve into you know, advertising to support in a way that it did in the past is <laughs> I, 
false or naive to sort of believe that? I don't know. Well, digital first was was a phase I think we had to go through. Mandy Jenkins and I both worked with John Payton when he renamed the newspaper company Digital First and had the last gasp effort for it to be innovative. And I worked with advanced publications, my old employer, on their digital first efforts, which was a transition. You're right. It's all digital in the end, and that's where it goes. But that's not sufficient because we still tried to imagine all of our products and processes would, as you said, be transferred into this new medium. The other problem is we look at the internet as a medium, and I don't think that's true. I think that it's the opposite. Media are part of a new network connected world that we call the internet. I've wanted to, without success, start a program in internet studies because I think that we've got to widen the canvas upon which we work past products and print and media into something that is very different, that brings us all kinds of tools other than stories to serve the public. The thing that kind of opened my eyes in just reading the the first few chapters of, of your book is this idea that when print came along, first, there was a way to share these ideas beyond just, you know, you telling a story or having it scribed by monks over a period of of years, you you began to be able to reach wider audiences and that, you know, what that audience want sort of influenced what was being printed and what efforts were being printed. And I began thinking about, you know, this idea of product that came along with print is something that I think we need to get past. And I think that's really kind of what you're saying, that print gave us a commodity that we were able to to sell and to able to support, you know, more print and, you know, for good and bad, that was a great thing. But now it's like, how do we monetize this, I guess, or, or how do we move forward? Or do we need to think beyond that? Well, I think we need to think way beyond that. If you look at the history of print, let's be clear that movable type was first used in China and Korea, but I mark it in the Western trajectory here from Gutenberg. The Bible came off the press in about 1454. And the first 50 years of print were called the incunabular phase, the infant phase, when what they were trying to do was recreate the work of the scribes, even in the look of the fonts and in what they chose to print and what they chose to spread. The business was in shambles at the turn of the century. They had flooded the market with capital. They had flooded the market with all of these, the work of the ancients. There was no more demand left. They had warehouses filled with books. And then came their rescue in the form of Martin Luther. And Luther didn't so much nail his theses to the, to the door of the church as the creak of Johannes Raoul Grunenberg's press made the noise heard around the world. And it utterly, obviously changed print. And the fact that Luther decided to publish in German was critical because he created a public long before Habermas's public sphere in the coffee houses of London. And he thus started to standardize the language and the idea of Germanness and the idea even of a nation. And we also had the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the Thirty Years' War and all kinds of turmoil that then came. So... I contend in the book that we're at the beginning of a very early and long process of change. To do the quick timeline here, Michael, so 1454, Bible off press, 1500, the book starts to take on the form we know now with titles, title pages, page numbers, paragraph indentations, and so on. 1600, we see the first huge rush of innovation with print. That is to say, the modern novel with Cervantes, the essay with Montaigne, the market for printed plays with Shakespeare and the newspaper in 1605. 
Fast forward another century to 1710, copyright with a statute of Anne and a business model is created for print where it becomes a commodity and a tradable asset and so on. 1800, we start to see the very first technological innovations with print with other advances, steam powered presses, paper made from wood pulp, much less expensive, the linotype and so on. 1920s, we get print's first competitor in radio and the mass medium is now fully set in motion and 1950s TV, and here we are today. And what I left out, of course, in that timeline was the internet. I mark the beginnings of the popular internet with the release of the commercial browser in 1994, which is to say we're about a quarter century away from that beginning. That puts us at about 1480 in Gutenberg years. It's very early. We don't know what the internet is yet. We're still seeing the future and the analog of the past. You and I are of the age, and maybe even our students are of the age, where they bring those presumptions from the past. How long will it be before we see Martin Luther? Is that Black Lives Matter? How long will it be before we see Cervantes and Montaigne and Shakespeare in the newspaper? Are we beginning to see that in advances in AI? I don't know. Yeah. You know, as a faculty member, you talk about your students, you talk about this, you know, internet-focused teaching. I mean, what are you telling students who want to come into journalism? I tell them that this is a great time to come into journalism because they are the ones who must change it. I'm too old. I won't know. I don't know how this story is going to end. Maybe they are too. Maybe it's uh, even beyond their future. But they're the ones who have to learn how journalism was, to question everything we tell them, to understand it mainly in terms of money and why we do what we do the way we do it, and then to challenge it. And there are things worth preserving. There are ethics and mores worth preserving. But we also need to rethink fundamentally the relationship of journalism with the public. And let's be clear that even aside from the right-wing crazies, a lot of the public, A, doesn't trust news, B, a lot of the people now, people now avoid news. The recent Reuters Institute surveys that I think 38% often avoid news because it's become unpleasant. Is that our fault? No, probably not. But it is our fault that we're not as useful as we should be, that we're not as constructive and productive as we should be, that we don't really listen to people and don't really serve people. So what I tell the students is to get past this idea of content, to even get past the idea of the story. They think they are there to be storytellers and write stories. And yes, that's a tool we have, but it is also a tool of power. It is a tool where the storyteller decides what the narrative is and who's in it and what they get to say. How do we help people tell their own stories? How do we help people get the information they need? How do we move even past information? I went to a pre-conference at AEJMC, the Journalism Educators Conference in Washington this last week, and there was a pre-conference on engagement journalism, a field that I helped start and that I'm proud to see expanding elsewhere in the country. And we even had a discussion that I helped provoke on whether we should drop the word journalism. Does it bring too much baggage? Does it bring too much assumption? Does it bring too much damage that journalism has done to too many communities? In another session, I asked whether the framing of journalism around information is wrong. Is it more than information? One study from Duke found that people are using listservs locally. Are they really just doing that for information? Are they also doing that for community and connection and to gather together and to act? When I say we have to fundamentally rethink the role of journalism, maybe we throw out what we were, again, holding on to some of the value that we created. 
Just as with moving past the age of print, we don't lose the value of print. We don't need to lose the value of journalism, but we can add so much more to it today. And also, I think, try to think about the damage that we must repair. When Walter Cronkite said, and that's the way it is, for many Americans, if not most, it was not the way it was. It was a hegemonic view of old white men presenting the nation with one narrative. This is why the tired, hackney, horrible, biased discussion of objectivity drives me bananas, because we've got to move past that idea that there's one truth from on high in the newsroom. We've got to have journalism that's emergent from communities. We have to have journalism that understands how to listen first. This idea that we're the gatekeepers, that, you know, we're going to serve up this information to you. We're going to be the source for that. A lot of the, the conversations I've had over the last few years have been around the idea of engagement. What is the scope of that? I mean, is that, I wonder if that's still kind of a wrong way to look at it, because you mentioned Black Lives Matter and the fact that traditional journalism, as most of us know it, was created, as you said, by, by white men to sort of serve that audience. And now that the internet is giving people opportunities like the Black Lives Matter movement to you know, create their own content, to reach their own audience. At the beginning, this idea that, okay, we're no longer the broadcasters, but we're, there's still a role for us as facilitators, or at least, but at the same time, you know, we want them to give us clicks, we want them to take care of our advertisers and everything. I think it, it's still, we're still stuck to that. It frustrates me a lot because I'm not sure where we go from here. Well, I think there are lessons to be learned from various places. When Kerry Brown and I started the engagement journalism program, it was called social journalism, engagement social, I'm not sure what the right, right label is, but at the essence, it's about listening. It's not even in our power to provide or empower communities. Communities are gonna do what they want to do and how do we help them do that is the primary question. I think there's much to be learned, for example, from black Twitter. And this is in the book. And I also have the honor of playing host to a black Twitter summit in February that was convened by four scholars of Black Twitter, Meredith Clark, Andre Brock Jr., Charlton McElwain, and Jonathan Flowers. And I learned a lot at that event. And we in media tend to look at Black Twitter as Black Lives Matter, which Lord knows is very important, which I think is a racial reckoning and reformation even. But what Andre Brock in his book, Distributed Blackness, has taught me is that that's the wrong way to look at it. I learned that I was looking at it through mass media lenses still. I was still looking at the success of big numbers and the huge thing that goes viral, where the essence of Black Twitter is, and I can't know this firsthand, but it is, as Andre Brock says, it's the everyday joys and sorrows. It's a place where people can be themselves not under white gaze, not according to the white definitions and the white default that is the internet. And you see this in recent days, there was the dockside brawl that went viral and one person hit another person over the head with a folding chair. And that became a meme on black Twitter with Martin Luther King's statue in Washington holding the folding chair, for example. And what people said was, well, if you got to figure out what this means, go to black Twitter. It was a way to say, we understand this and you don't have to, or you don't. And there was a wonderful column in the New York Times today about you know, the history of that event where people fought back. But it's also fascinating to see the discourse about it and the means of discussing it in Twitter. And it wasn't 
articles. It wasn't stories. It was, you know, we've created through not just the alphabet of print, but also through memes and emoji and so on, new mechanisms for people to express themselves, but more than express themselves, to join together, to find commonality, to truly engage in community. That's what we can learn, I think, from watching this. Now, the other lesson we obviously can learn from Twitter is that it's terribly dangerous to put public discourse in the hands of one company that can be taken over by a nihilistic narcissist. And so we've got to recognize the need for open source and other things online, but that's another story. Do you feel that the example that you gave of Black Twitter, do you feel that this creates a segmentation where, you know, different audiences are developing their way to communicate within themselves and share their own, you know, ideals or views? Are there opportunities here to, you know, build bridges to sort of educate us in a wider way? There are multiple parentheses at work here. There's the Gutenberg parenthesis back from the beginnings of print and, and print culture and what that means. There's also the mass media parenthesis. And I think that the period from television in the 1950s up into the 90s, the beginning of the internet, was itself a parenthesis and an exception in the history of society and of media itself. This is the mass media myth that we all are together with one shared narrative. And that's the way it is. That was a lie. It was purely a myth. And so what we see happening is a return pre parenthesis to a more natural state of many people have many different outlets and many different places and ways together. You know, I have behind me on my shelf, a directory of newspapers in America in 1900. And it's thick. And the section in New York is thick. And there were tons of newspapers speaking to different groups of people in different ways. And that was a more natural state of being, I think. One thing I learned in writing the Gutenberg Parenthesis, which amazed me, was that before the mechanization and industrialization of print in the 1800s with steam power and linotype and so on, before that, the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the United States was 4,000. It was a good Substack newsletter, right? And so that scale of media is something we have to get our heads around again. I think we're looking for something that comes after Twitter and Musk that's going to be as big in Twitter as Musk. Well, that's a mistake. In fact, it was always a mistake to view Twitter that way. Because as Mark Zuckerberg said to me years ago, no two people ever see the same Facebook. We think Facebook is huge. Well, it's huge so it can be small. That you weren't speaking to everybody at once if you go to Twitter. You were speaking to a small number of people. Our presumptions about scale in media and news and journalism have to fundamentally change. It never was a grand shared narrative in this country. That was the myth. What we have to do is get past that myth now. Do you think you could have written this book 10 years ago? Well, it took me 10 years to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I must have um, thought that it was, yeah, no. Because that's, that's about when I started. The original book I wanted to write was about the death of the mass. And I read a lot of books about that. And I didn't think I was qualified to do it. I started writing that book. And that's, in fact, the beginning of the chapter about mass in the Gutenberg parenthesis. But I saw a bigger story and a story about media and a context for it that made more sense to me. No, I couldn't have written 10 years ago because I've done so much reading in the meantime. Now, I think what you're asking is, has the world changed enough 10 years ago to recognize what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think Marshall McLuhan, both loved and derided, had tremendous insight in his way into the kind of changes that were coming. You know, wouldn't it be amazing to see amusing ourselves to death, written today with a new afterword by the author, saying what the internet has, or for McLuhan to be able to look at it today, or for, you know, Habermas is now trying to look at it. So yeah, there's change, but I think we could see the outlines of print culture. What 
really got me going in this book was Clay Shirky of NYU some years ago recommended uh, Elizabeth Eisenstein's uh, The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. And it's a 700-page tome. And when I started reading the book, what surprised me was how defensive she was about book history. I thought, why is this? What it turns out was that she wanted to, and I interviewed her about this for a prior book, and she wanted to look at the impact of print in history and culture, and inspired by McLuhan, with whom she disagreed. She wanted to disagree with him. She wanted to do the research to disagree with him. And she couldn't find the books and the papers about book history and its role in society, amazing as that is. And so she was being defensive of the need for this field. And she was a woman, academic, and it all piled together. And she was right to be defensive. And in fact, she got attacked afterwards in what I think were a lot of sexist attacks. But she basically founded the field of book history. So now look at the internet. We can't wait 500 years to start the field of study on the internet. Right now, in this time, we can study this. We have to study this. We have to have more research. We have to have more data fed to researchers. We have to understand better what is happening now in the context of history. So yes, I think one could have attacked this idea of print culture 10 years ago easily. Eisenstein did, McLuhan did, Innes did, lots of other scholars did. But personally for me, it took that time for me to try to break out of some of, not all, of my old presumptions to look at the world differently. When Elon Musk bought Twitter and there was all this sort of outrage and people were moving to, you know, other platform, Mastodon and things like that, you know, I started thinking about, well, Twitter wasn't here 20 years ago. I mean, we could live in a world with, you know, maybe Twitter goes away or something comes in and, and replaces it and then there'll be sort of change. And so they began to think about, well, what does it mean for social media? Does that mean that social media is going to evolve in a different way? But to your point about mass, the death of mass, I think that's kind of what I was thinking as I was reading your book. I haven't gotten to the mass chapter yet, that the thinking is all wrong. This idea that I'm a journalist and I'm covering things the way I cover them and I'm writing them and I'm, and I'm pushing them out, trying to take advantage of, of the medium is almost a naive way to utilize the internet that I'm not, you know, thinking that way. Well, the way I would look at it and the, and the way I do in the book, the last chapter before the afterward, the afterwards about the future of the book, but the last chapter is about institutions. And in the end, what I came to see is this is a, this is a story of institutions. When, print began, again, Gutenberg was a, was a creature of the prior era. He was a man of the scribal era, and he was trying to automate and perfect the work of the scribes. He didn't see, I don't think, he couldn't have seen, we don't really know much about him, but we couldn't have seen what was ahead. In 1470, very shortly after the Bible came off the press in 1454, what is said to be the first call for censorship of print. Niccolo Perotti, a translator, Latin scholar, was much offended by a bad, shoddy translation of Pliny, and he wrote to the Pope and said, you must do something about this. Something must be done. You've got to appoint a censor, an erudite scholar, to approve all of these things before they come off the press. And I thought about it, and I realized he wasn't asking for a censor at all. What he was asking for, or actually anticipating, was the creation of the institutions of editing and publishing. That in the early days of print, print was not trusted at all because its provenance was not clear. Anybody can make this. I've been reading a lot for my next book about a concept called fama, 
which is about the reputation of information and those who spread it, which is what people depended upon before print. So what we now think of as rumor was more authoritative because you knew its provenance, you knew where it came from, you knew it was the innkeeper who talked to the, the guy who just came in from Florence who knew what was going on. And so these institutions of editing and, and publishing did a pretty good job of assuring authority and quality and credibility and artistry in print for a half a millennium, but they are inadequate to speech at the scale we have today. And so we need new institutions. Similarly, copyright was invented not to protect authors. It was invented to create a marketplace with creativity as a tradable asset for the benefit of booksellers and publishers. It too is inadequate to the task today and outmoded. We need to rethink the institution. Journalism, as we know it today, the newspaper was created in 1605, but there are many forms of spreading news, ballads and news books and poetry and other things spread news before that. And it wasn't sure kind of what would win. And so the point here is that these institutions that we think of as immutable are not forever, are temporary. Same with the first proprietors of the internet. We're old enough, you and I, to remember MySpace and Excite and Yahoo and AOL and other things that were going to be forever. So I don't think that Google and Facebook and Twitter are forever. I don't think that copyright is forever, though it's going to be hard to dislodge it. I think our concepts of journalism and editing and publishing must change. We may come up with entirely new institutions. We may reinvigorate certain institutions. We may support institutions as they exist, like let's say libraries that we need. So this is in the end an institutional story. And right now our institutions of the internet are corporations. And that was perhaps a necessary phase to go through because they had the investment necessary to do what they did. But again, Musk teaches us the danger of putting too much in the hands of those private parties. And so things like Mastodon and ActivityPub and Blue Sky excite me because they open up a different paradigm for how we think of the structure of the institutions of what is now the internet. When you were talking about the early online businesses, one of the things that I remembered or thought about was Napster. And that was kind of like a, a shot across the bow of everything, not journalism, not writing, but just the structure, the business structure around the sharing of art and information. And what happened there was everybody banded together and plugged that hole in the, in the dam. And that was going to take care of that. But we have seen, they found a new, new ways to monetize what they're doing. The music industry was the first hit by the snowball coming down the mountain that became an avalanche. And indeed, Napster woke them up. And at first, they resisted and reacted by trying to stop it and trying to stand behind the protection of copyright and so on. And then finally woke up. And the music industry is way ahead of us in recognizing the, the phrases like the long tail. The number of Spotify's former chief economist, I think his name is Will Page, has written very interestingly on this, on how the number of artists and the number of genre that are supported now in the music industry through things like Spotify has exploded, which again is literally more voices, voices that wanted to be heard, that couldn't be heard before, couldn't make it through the gauntlet that was the institution of music publishing and, and performance. And now they can. And the scale is different, but there's a lot more creativity to be seen. And is it harder for you to make it huge? Absolutely. You can't be 
Pink or Taylor Swift. They never could do it easily, but there'll be fewer of them. But there'll be more artists doing things that people enjoy, and I think that has real value. Now, as far as the economics go, we in our field are tremendously inefficient. Ben Smith's new book, Traffic, I think illustrates, as as I tried to say earlier badly, the story he tells of Gawker and BuzzFeed is not the death of the beginnings of new media. It is the last gasp of old mass media that sought attention for attention's sake, traffic for traffic's sake. And the key anecdote in the book is the story of the two color dress. Is it these colors or those colors? No one can agree, right? Oh my God. <laughs> After that story came out, every time I went to a journalism conference for quite some time thereafter, if I, if I had the stage, I would ask the room, how many of you in your outlets had your own version of that story? And every hand would go up. Well, think about that. This silly little, wonderful little story in BuzzFeed, everyone would rewrite it and write their own version. Why? Because the business model drove them to, because they had to have their own content filling their own page, to get their own eyeballs through their own likes and clicks and SEO to get their own pennies from their own ads. And that is a waste, a tremendous waste of journalistic resource. And now along comes AI and generative AI. And what do we see? We see companies trying to say, oh good, we can make even more content. We can make even more crappy copies of what people already know to try to grab our likes, our SEO and so on. Well, I think that might cauterize the wound and show just it is the final commodification of content. It is the death of the value of content. It says our value does not lie in content. Our value should lie in service and relationships and trust and authority and other things that we don't necessarily own today like we think we do. And so the music industry indeed has taught us a different way to look at openness and scale and uniqueness that I think we could learn from, but have not begun to learn from yet. So to sort of wrap this up, you know, what is it about the internet now and looking into the future that concerns you, but then also maybe, you know, imbues you with some optimism? We have choices. Technology is not determinant. It does not set our path. It can be used for good or bad. We know that. And it's up to us to decide how we use it. And I think that we have more responsibility and agency than we like to believe. Part of my problem with media's moral panic about technology today, all of my problem with it, is that it finds an easy target to blame for our ills in society. To say that the internet made us hate and and brought racism and sexism is ridiculous. We were a nation of hate and racism and sexism long before. And when we blame the internet, we use that as an excuse not to deal with the underlying and greater problems. I think journalism is failing badly, badly at examining those underlying problems and helping find paths towards solutions. Solutions journalism is one I think mind shift that that is helpful in that direction. And there are others out there. Spaceship media brings people together into conversation. City Bureau trains people to do the report on their own communities. There are lots of very nice small scale experiments that are out there. But journalism as a whole, as as an institution, as an industry is not working. And what upsets me most, I think, is that we are not self-reflective. We do not cover ourselves that the Washington Post and the New York Times got rid of their ombudsman. 
I've been frustrated for some time that we don't cover Fox News as the political actor it is. And I was on MSNBC's air when I, when I used to still be on. And I said, why don't you guys do a feature called We Watch Fox News so you don't have to, so we can see what that part of the country is seeing and not seeing in media. And they didn't do it, but I funded an alum of our school through my center named Juliet Jeske to start something called Decoding Fox News, where she's doing a very good job of that, watching Fox News for us to see what is being covered, importantly, not covered. These days, when you turn on Fox News, you don't see anything about the indictments of Trump, you hear nothing but Hunter Biden and his laptop. What does that do? And how do we cover news? How do we cover the New York Times credulous views? How do we cover the damage of opinion polls? How do we cover the damage that's been done to communities that for too long were not represented in media? So on the one hand, I'm depressed about the current state of our institution. On the other hand, I think we have a very long runway ahead of us. And the point of studying history is to recognize the choices that we have. And we have choices. The path is not set. It is not determined. We can change how things head. And that's where I find my optimism. Jeff, I think it's a good place to end. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>